I will get rid of and totally destroy the Johnson Amendment. Hey, hey, hey. Keep your hands off my Johnson Amendment. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Nobody. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle. Oh, of they're you. everywhere. Yes, I'm stuck in From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1. In Palinville, New York, 102.9 FM WLPP. And Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR. In Minneapolis, St. Paul's, great, AM 950, KTNF. We're also heard streaming coast-to-coast and around the globe on the internets, on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker. All-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up, Donald Trump signed another one of his executive orders today. This one, it seems, may have been particularly toothless and pointless, but it allowed for him and his uh, right-wing religious supporters to pretend that they are fending off some imaginary religious discrimination. It also, more importantly, I think, may set the table for an actual legislative version of this order. And that, as my guest coming up today uh, shortly uh, will argue, uh, could be very troubling for money in politics, as if secret dark money has not corrupted our political system enough. Oh, just you wait. The right has a plan for even more of it. We'll explain shortly uh, with my guest, Brendan Fisher of the Campaign Legal Center. Um, Speaking of uh, plans from the right, uh, today, quite a day in the U.S. Hello, Desi Doyle. I should say hello to you before I go any further here. Hello, (laughs) Desi Doyle. I am here, and my goodness, there's a lot of news today. You think? Uh, Well, uh, let me actually start here, not in what's going. Well, this is going on in the U.S. Senate. This is uh, perhaps the only the second most noteworthy vote in the U.S. Congress today. The U.S. Senate approved a one point one trillion dollar budget to fund the government through the end of September. The U.S. House overwhelmingly approved that same legislation on Wednesday. And so now the bill heads to Donald Trump for his signature. It's the first major bipartisan legislation that has been passed by both houses during the Trump presidency, and it includes virtually nothing that Trump had sought in his budget uh, proposal. It doesn't fund the border wall that Mexico was supposed to pay for anyway. It doesn't cut funding to Planned Parenthood. It does cut the EPA budget, but by just 1% versus the 30% cut that Trump had sought. And, uh, And it continues to fund the Affordable Care Act, 
or Obamacare. Basically, uh, the great negotiator got next to nothing in this budget deal that runs that keeps the government open at least through uh, the end of September. But speaking of the Affordable Care Act, uh, this is from uh, this is from Consumer Reports um, yesterday, I think. Uh, as legislators and executive branch uh, renew their efforts to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act this week, they might want to keep in mind a little-known financial consequence of the Affordable Care Act. Since its adoption, far fewer Americans have taken the extreme step of filing for personal bankruptcy. And when they say far fewer, they mean really far fewer. Filings have dropped about 50 percent from about 1.5 million back in 2010 to about seven and a half, uh, 770,000 in 2016. Those years represent the time frame when the ACA took effect. Although courts do not ask people to declare why they are filing for bankruptcy, many bankruptcy and legal experts agree that medical bills had been a leading cause of personal bankruptcy before public health care coverage was expanded under Obamacare. Unlike other causes of debt, they write, medical bills are often unexpected, involuntary, and very large. Lois Lupica, a bankruptcy expert at the Maine Law Foundation, said if you're uninsured or underinsured, you can run up a huge debt in a short period of time. So did the Affordable Care Act, which helped some 20 million Americans get health insurance, cause the decline in bankruptcies? Consumer Reports says that uh, many experts that they interviewed also pointed to other two other contributing factors an improving economy and changes to bankruptcy laws back in 2005 that made it more difficult and costly to file for bankruptcy. However, they almost all agreed that expanded health coverage played a major role in the marked recent decline in bankruptcy. Some of the most important financial protections of the Affordable Care Act apply to all consumers, whether they get their coverage through the Affordable Care Act exchanges or not. These provisions include mandated coverage for pre-existing conditions and on most benefits uh, and on most covered benefits, an end to annual and lifetime coverage caps, which, in fact, they uh, they say led to this steady decline in bankruptcy. And if you look at their they include a chart here, you see the steady rise of bankruptcy. Uh, bankruptcy filings until 2010 when the Affordable Care Act is signed into law and then boom they it just the the numbers just go straight down all the way uh, until uh, 2016 which is the latest numbers that they have so that you would think would be a good thing that Republicans would want to continue but apparently they don't Congresswoman Louise Slaughter, Democrat of New York, said, I have never seen political suicide in my life like I am seeing today. She was referring to the very narrowly passed American Health Care Act, a bill in the U.S. House that uh, to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act uh, that was voted on today and successfully passed in the U.S. House just before the uh, just before Congress is set to leave for a 10 day vacation Actually, 11 day vacation. They did just return in case you're wondering. Yes, they did just return from a two week Easter recess. In any event, they passed finally passed a bill to replace Obamacare in the U.S. House. 
by a narrow margin, a four-vote margin. 20, uh, 2017, I'm not, not 2017, 217 to 213. Without a single Democratic vote, they had about 20 Republicans uh, who voted against it. The House bill includes a huge tax cut for uh, wealthy Americans and for health insurance and drug companies. It rolls back state-by-state expansions of Medicaid, which covered millions of low-income Americans. Uh, this is the same. They, they've amended it a little bit, but this is the same American Health Care Act that uh, they pulled about six weeks ago out of the U.S. House in place of government subsidies, uh, subsidized insurance policies offered on the Affordable Care Act marketplaces. The Republican bill would offer tax credits of two to four thousand dollars a year, depending mainly on age. So it would be based on your age, not on how much money you make, how much you actually need to try and uh, afford your premiums. And also, if you don't make enough money to pay taxes, a tax credit does you no good. Well, that's true, too, isn't it? Uh, In addition to erasing the tax increases from the Affordable Care Act, Uh, On higher earning people and the uh, health industry, the bill cuts the Medicaid program for low income people. It lets states impose work requirements on Medicaid recipients. It transforms Obama's subsidies for millions who are buying insurance, uh, largely based on incomes and uh, premium costs, into those tax credits you talk about, Des, that uh, rise with the consumer's ages. Democratic Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi called the Republican bill a billionaire's tax cut disguised as a health uh, care bill. Robin Hood in reverse, she described it as. Frank Clemente of the Progressive Americans for Tax Fairness agreed in a statement this afternoon. He said 217 Republicans in Congress today voted to remove health care from 24 million people in order to give $600 billion in tax cuts to the wealthy pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies. He said they may have missed the memo that Donald Trump wrote into power on a platform of economic populism. The Make America Great crowd won't be happy when they realize that this was just a major tax cut for rich people disguised as a health bill. I wouldn't want to be a Republican member of Congress over the next 18 months, says uh, says Clemente. The uh, Congressional Budget Office analysis of the Affordable Health Care Act released in March found, for example, that a 64-year-old could see his premiums go up on the individual market. Uh, He would see that skyrocket under the Republican bill because insurers would be able to charge older enrollees more compared to what Obamacare allows, which puts limits on that. So, for example, they found a 64-year-old Uh, making $26,500 would pay about $1,700 for coverage in 2026 under Obamacare, thanks to the subsidies. But under the Republican plan, that annual premium would be $14,600 for that 64-year-old. About half of that person's salary. Uh, Yep. Uh, and uh, because the tax credits would not offer uh, would not offset uh, as much of the cost of the premiums under the Republican bill, uh, as proposed and then pulled back in March, non the nonpartisan budget analysts at the CBO had estimated that 24 million million people could be uninsured by 2026, including 14 million alone by next year. 
So what has changed since that March version? Well, we really don't know because the Republicans did not wait to have it scored by the Congressional Budget Office. So we actually have no idea what the ultimate effect of this will be, but it's probably not going to be better than what was found in March. It's probably going to be worse under the new amended version that was passed by the House today. States could get federal waivers freeing insurers from a number of Obama coverage requirements. Those waivers uh, would allow insurers to charge people with pre-existing illnesses far higher rates than healthy customers. It would boost prices for older consumers uh, to basically to whatever they wish uh, and and ignore the mandate that they cover services like doctor's visits, hospital stays, pregnancy care. You know, most of the stuff that you might think your health insurance would actually help cover making the law. Uh, worse than it was seems to have been what the far right freedom caucus in the House actually wanted, what they needed to get on board. They were against it before. Now they're all in. But uh, who knows how many of the members who voted for the bill today even know what they voted for, because there was no analysis by the uh, by the CBO before Paul Ryan rammed this through Congress, literally. Remember when uh, Remember when the Republicans used to complain about that, what was it, 15-month, 17-month-long process to, uh, to pass Obamacare back in 2009 and 2010? Oh, yeah. They called that ramming it through Congress. That was darling. Uh, here, here's a <laughs> reminder. Uh, Paul Ryan, who's, who's now Speaker of the House, uh, who pushed this thing through today. In just, what, three or four days? Yep. Uh, here he is being, and before it was scored. And before anybody could read it, I mean, last night uh, they announced that this vote was going to take place today before they had even released the final text of the bill. Before there was any independent analysis of its costs or its impacts on health coverage. And yet they uh, they they rammed it forward today. So here's a reminder from back in 2009. Here's Paul Ryan complaining about committee members, not even the full House, as we saw today, but committee members being forced to vote on Obamacare related legislation before it had been uh, scored by the Congressional Budget Office. You wrote recently in an op-ed in the Milwaukee, Wisconsin Journal, and those members of Congress who voted for this bill already in their committees did so without knowing what the legislation cost. Before it's too late, let's take a closer look. Now, uh, are Republicans being genuine in their complaint that this is moving too quickly? Well, yes, I don't think we should pass bills that we haven't read that we don't know what they cost. I mean, that, I don't think that's <laughs> being abusive. That didn't age well. No, but it's being disingenuous. That was Paul Ryan back in 2009. Even uh, Republicans over in the Senate, Lindsey Graham said a bill finalized yesterday has not been scored. Amendments not allowed. And three hours final debate should be viewed with caution said Senator Graham on Twitter. He said, I appreciate the apparent progress on health care reform in the House of Representatives. I will admit I'm concerned with the process. That's OK. He'll find a way to come around anyway. Lindsey Graham always does. Uh, Congresswoman uh, Ileana ross Leighton uh, said, despite amendments and changes, the American Health Care Act still fails to provide for the needs of my constituents. She's a Republican from Florida and has the potential to severely harm the health and lives of people in South Florida. Therefore, she said, I remain steadfast in my commitment to vote no on the AHCA. Basically, the uh, the new amendments let insurers charge 
sick people more and cover less, according to Vox.com. Now, Paul Ryan and Donald Trump have insisted that the bill still protects those with pre-existing conditions. And some in the media have been willing to report it that way. But the facts suggest otherwise. Uh, The uh, Paul Ryan, Donald Trump claim uh, is that uh, states now can only get a waiver from the pre-existing conditions requirement in Obamacare if they have some sort of high risk pool program to help cover those with such conditions um, who uh, insurance companies will once again be allowed to jack up the cost of coverage for the, the, the cost of premiums and so forth for those people. But uh, critics of these so-called high-risk pools have noted in the past, uh, before the Affordable Care Act was implemented, that they rarely covered the needs. This is what people used to have to rely on. And they rarely covered the needs of those who were forced to use them. Democratic House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi again uh, says the return to such high-risk pools in, in states that decide to take the waiver option that has now been added to the Republican bill um, to stop the currently mandated coverage of those with pre-existing conditions. Nancy Pelosi says that's not going to work any better this time. What you would need is probably about $200 billion over 10 years. What they have done is $8 million over five years. If you divide that by the number of people who have a pre-existing medical condition, you get about two or $300 a year. It's a joke. It's a very sad, deadly joke. And just by way of, uh, well, reminder or information, more than 27 percent of Americans have illnesses that health insurance companies consider to be uh, pre-existing conditions and that they used to deny coverage for if they felt like it. Kentucky House member John Yarmuth, uh, the the top Democrat on the uh, on the House Budget Committee, explained yesterday the, the failure of these high risk pools before Obamacare came around. The, the history of high risk pools is pretty discouraging. Uh, before 2011, there were 35 states that had high risk pools. They only insured 226,000 people. Uh, most all the states had high caps on annual and lifetime limits. They, the premiums were 150 to 200 percent of what the standard rate was in those, in those uh, areas. So the, the experience by and large has been terrible. I know in California, uh, I think one out of six people who tried to get into high risk pool in California were actually able to get into it. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, and you said 27 percent of Americans. Yeah. 27. That's a third. Yeah. A third of Americans Almost. would be falling under this. It could be. Yeah. Could be if in if these states decide to take that waiver, um, which would allow them to no longer you know, have to cover people with pre-existing conditions. Wow. Jackie Schechner, our, our, our friend, a health care uh, uh, advocate. Healthcare, what legislation at reform advocate? There we go. I uh, has been on this show many times. Said uh, she tweeted last night. Hey, House GOP, high risk pools are a lot like those fake death panels you used to care about so much, but real. Uh, in <laughs> yeah. fact, uh, CNN's uh, Chris Saliza notes that uh, House Republicans who were desperate to pass something, anything. Uh, may be in trouble for passing this bill, uh, if only because 
The states with the largest number of uh, people under 65, if you're 65, you get Medicare, so you don't have to worry about it. And, you know, if we had Medicare for all, nobody would have to worry about it. But of the 11 states in which 30 percent, 30 percent or more of the under 65 population has some sort of pre-existing condition, all 11 were won by Donald Trump in 2016. That's West Virginia, Mississippi, Kentucky, Alabama, Arkansas, Tennessee, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Missouri, Indiana, Kansas. So uh, what those numbers mean, says Wright Saliza, is that many of the people most in favor of repealing and replacing Obamacare are also the people most likely to be directly affected and not in a good way if this new GOP bill becomes law. Uh, it's uh, being opposed by, oh, just a few people. Let's see, the American Diabetes Association, the Can- Cancer Action Network, the American Heart Association, the American Lung Association, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, the American Medical Association, on and on and on. They all oppose this bill that Republicans voted to pass today. House Minority Leader uh, Nancy Pelosi once again uh, uh, said that House Republicans are going to tattoo this moral monstrosity to their foreheads and the American people will hold them accountable. Well, we'll see. Washington Post congressional reporter Paul Kane uh, quoted one House Republican telling uh, GOP whip Steve Scalise, uh, last night, as as uh, he was leaving a, a Republic a GOP meeting on this, uh, he was quoted as saying, "Burn the ships." Citing Cortez upon landing in Mexico, only way to do it, Scalise replied. Joe Scarborough, the former Republican congressman, now the host of uh, MSNBC's Morning Joe, said, uh, because tomorrow is the last day ever that the House can ever vote on this bill, ever. So burn the ships, rush on shore and lose in 2018. But the uh, the bill did pass the, the U.S. House today. Uh, as real or fake as the effort may be to actually uh, improve on Obamacare. Uh, They're going to face a much more difficult uh, time, I suspect. We'll see in the U.S. Senate. Uh, But this passed finally, finally today in the U.S. House. They approved it and uh, put the health care for tens of millions of Americans now potentially at risk passed before they scurried away for another 11-day vacation in the uh, in the U.S. House. So uh, we'll see if it gets through the U.S. Senate. Uh, and if it does, we'll see uh, who, if anyone, that is good for. I, I don't know that it will be good for the uh, for for Republicans, but I guess we'll see over the next 10 days as they head back home to their districts and start meeting with uh, many of their constituents, who I'm sure will be delighted about all of this. Uh, Speaking of what delights uh, constituents in Republican strongholds, Donald Trump signed an executive order today in support of religious freedoms or at least pretending to do so. And, uh, oh, he got some good headlines out of it, I guess. That story is next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away.
Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Setting aside that fantastic victory for uh, House Republicans today and Donald Trump in uh, passing a bill to gut Obamacare and potentially take away health care from tens of millions of Americans. Remember when Donald Trump, before he became president, used to say stuff like this? Signing executive orders is not the way our country was supposed to be run. Nobody ever heard of an executive order. Then all of a sudden, Obama, because he couldn't get anybody to agree with him, he starts signing them like they're uh, butter. You have a president that signs executive orders because he can't get anything done. He signs on immigration and on other things. I want to not use too many executive orders, folks. <laughs> the executive orders are an outrage. We have a president that can't lead. He said, the hell with it. I'm not going to do this anymore. I want to rest and I want to do other things, including going out play golf. This guy played hundreds of rounds of golf. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was Donald Trump then, uh, before he became president. He seems to have had a change of heart when it comes to executive orders of late. Now, back in February, just about two weeks after he was sworn in as president, during an address to the uh, National Prayer Breakfast, Donald Trump vowed this. I will get rid of and totally destroy the Johnson Amendment and allow our representatives of faith to speak freely and without fear of retribution. I will do that. Remember. He will get rid of and totally destroy that Johnson Amendment. Of course, conservative Christian groups welcomed the promise, even as many Americans had no idea what the hell Trump's reference to the Johnson Amendment actually was about. What what the Johnson Amendment uh, actually was or is, but a lot of right wing political groups certainly know what it is. Back in 1954, as Brendan Fisher of the Campaign Legal Center explains in a white paper published earlier this year, the Republican-controlled U.S. Senate adopted an uncontroversial measure prohibiting tax-exempt charities from engaging in partisan political activities. And the legislation was signed with little fanfare by the Republican president, Dwight D. Eisenhower, at the time, notes, uh, notes Fisher. Uh, religious institutions were not the primary target of the prohibition, he says. The amendment's sponsor, Senator then-Senator Lyndon Johnson, had been attacked by a charity, the Committee for Constitutional Government, in his re-election campaign that year. That was, as uh, Brendan Fisher says, an early example of dark money, since charities uh, were not required to disclose their donors. On June 18, 1954, Johnson sent a letter to the Commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service with evidence of the uh, political activities by this group, this Committee for Constitutional Government, or CCG. Johnson wrote, 
I cannot recall any other similar flagrant engagement in political affairs by a tax-exempt organization, and he inquired as to whether electoral intervention may be properly and legally engaged in by such an exempt organization. The IRS commissioner at the time promptly responded that CCG's activities, quote, are no less amusing and shocking to me than they are to you, and I can tell you that we are taking appropriate steps to see just what is the effect of the activities of these organizations under the internal revenue laws and what, if anything, can be done about their present status in relation to exemption privileges. Out of all of that came passage of the so-called Johnson Amendment. Under the terms of that uh, 1954 legislation named for Senator Lyndon, then Senator Lyndon Johnson, churches and other nonprofit 501c3 organizations that are exempt from taxation are, according to the IRS website today, quote, absolutely prohibited from directly or indirectly participating in or intervening in any political campaign on behalf of or in opposition to any candidate for elective public office. So organizations claiming this tax-exempt status cannot collect contributions on behalf of political campaigns or make any statements for or against a particular candidate, and clergy are not allowed to endorse candidates from the pulpit. That's an exchange for the privilege of both not paying taxes and allowing tax deductions for those who give charitable contributions to such groups. Now, as noted, it has not been particularly controversial. That law um, was applied to an amendment to the 1917 law, which created charitable tax deductions in the first place. So the law adopted in the 50s has been supported and strengthened on a bipartisan basis by administrations of both political uh, parties since then. So it's, it's not really controversial at all, except to apparently... A few folks who have been working for a number of years now to lift this Johnson Amendment restriction on tax subsidized nonprofits and religious groups. They've been doing it for years trying to get rid of this. Uh, and that now apparently they have the ear of the president of the United States on Thursday. As Congress and much of the nation was distracted with the Republican effort in the U.S. House to repeal and replace Obamacare, Donald Trump signed another one of his executive orders. This one, as CNN notes, could allow churches and other religious organizations to become more politically active and directs the IRS to, quote, exercise maximum enforcement discretion over the Johnson Amendment. During a Rose Garden signing ceremony today marking the National Day of Prayer, we have one of those? Apparently so. Trump, uh, Trump proclaimed, we will not allow people of faith to be targeted, bullied, or silenced anymore, and we will never, ever stand for religious discrimination. Never, ever, he repeated. But the president doesn't actually have the power to change laws passed by Congress with his executive orders. The Johnson Amendment is, uh, you know, a law. Uh, so what, if anything, does this executive order actually do? And what's the real reason that Trump and his friends on the religious right uh, are hoping to challenge the otherwise non-controversial idea that churches with tax-exempt status should avoid partisan politicking 
and specifically endor- uh, avoid endorsing or opposing political candidates. Here to answer those questions and uh, probably many more is our old friend Brendan Fisher. He is associate counsel at the Campaign Legal Center in Washington, D.C., and recently wrote that white paper on this Johnson Amendment so we can all be a little bit smarter about it. Hey, Brendan, welcome back to the broadcast. Hey, Brad. Thanks for having me. We've uh, we've spoken many times over the years, uh, Brendan, about uh, what Scott Walker uh, is doing up in Wisconsin and his far-right uh, Republican cronies, what they've been trying to pull off with their use of dark money given to these nonprofits. So I'm, I'm happy to finally talk to you about something completely different with you today, even though, as it turns out, it may ultimately not be all that different after all. Um, at least as as you note, describing what could be a path to, uh, what did you call it, super dark money, I think. So uh, <laughs> be, before we get to that, let, let me, uh, setting aside the apparent hypocrisy of, of Trump's perf- you know, concerns about religious discrimination, I mean, this is the guy who, who sought to ban Muslims from entering the U.S. based on their religion. Um, he said today that uh, pastors, priests, and imams were targeted by the Johnson Amendment, and now they'd be freer to exchange uh, to engage in political activity under his executive order. So, um, what does the executive order actually call for in this case? Before we discuss what he can and can't do legally with such orders. Yeah. Uh, well, so first of all, uh, as you as you described, uh, the Johnson Amendment is is not targeting churches at all. Uh, it's a prohibition uh, on any group organized under Section 501c3 of the tax code, which includes churches but also charities. Every single, every single charity in the U.S. is organized under Section 501c3 of the tax code. And because donors to these groups, to these churches and charities, get a, a tax deduction for their donations, uh, 501c3s are prohibited from engaging in political activity. And the reason for that is because uh, effectively, uh, the reason that donors get it, the, the reason that taxpayers are effectively subsidizing these groups mm-hmm. is for their charitable or religious or social welfare-oriented activities, not for political activities and political mm-hmm. political engagement and partisan political engagement. So this is, even though this is framed uh, by Trump and, and others as some, having something to do with religious liberty, Really, it's not. This is there's a there's a very good reason for this prohibition. There's a reason this prohibition has been on the books for over 60 years, and there's a reason that courts have repeatedly upheld it. Uh, it's because we are we we as taxpayers are subsidizing these groups, and we're not subsidizing these groups to offer wealthy donors a, a tax deduction for their secret political spending. Where we as taxpayers are subsidizing these groups for their public benefit, mm-hmm. for their public welfare activities. Um, and the Johnson Amendment, as it's as it's been referred to, uh, is is really very rarely enforced, at least against at least against churches. Um, the last time it was enforced was in the '90s, when a church called Branch Ministries took out a full page ad uh, urging people not to vote for Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the last church to have its tax exempt status revoked. Uh, and then over the past few years, uh, there have been a number of uh, evangelical churches and and some other churches. That have that have intentionally challenged the IRS uh, and said that we on this particular Sunday are going to talk about candidates and endorse candidates from the pulpit, uh, and the the IRS hasn't done anything about it. So it's it's a very it's a uh, it's a rarely enforced prohibition, 
And the executive order signed by Trump, despite the fanfare, despite the promises that he was going to do something about the reach of the Johnson Amendment, the executive order actually doesn't do doesn't do a thing. Uh, it goes even it, even though at the beginning Trump was describing the executive order as allowing the IRS or urging the IRS to use its discretion not to enforce the law, it actually doesn't even do that. It basically says that if a church engages in an activity that's not already tr- considered partisan, p- prohibited partisan political activity, the IRS shouldn't start to treat it as partisan political activity. So basically it says the IRS is going to continue to enforce the current restrictions, but the IRS cannot further expand the restrictions that apply to churches and, and charities. And, so it's, it's and what, was there a particular move to expand uh, what, what the, the way the IRS was enforcing that provision? No, no, <laughs> there was not. There was not. Uh, it's been, this provision has been laying dormant in many ways. Uh, the, the provision has been laying dormant for many, for many years. Uh, it hasn't been challenged. It was not expanded under the Obama administration, for example. Um, so effectively, what this executive order does is, is maintain the status quo. And the status quo has, has allowed uh, churches to speak out about the issues of the day, uh, speak out about political issues, speak out about abortion or war or social justice, uh, you know, however, however churches however church is oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they are just prohibited from endorsing and supporting candidates, and they're prohibited from uh, running ads, for example, endorsing or supporting supporting candidates. And this executive order really doesn't change that. So they already were allowed to do political activity, just not endorse. The IRS was already not really even enforcing uh, this provision against those uh, groups that were those those churches that were endorsing. And this is Donald Trump's version of totally destroying uh, what was d- d- religious discrimination, as he sees it, against these uh, churches. Uh, am I understanding that correct? I guess. Well, who knows? I mean, I, that that that's about right. I mean, that's the current state of that's the current state of affairs. Okay. Um, but but we don't know. I think there there is still a risk that uh, that. Republicans in Congress could actually repeal the Johnson Amendment or pass legislation uh, narrowing the reach of the Johnson Amendment. And if that's the case, uh, then churches and potentially charities could become the super dark money groups that we mm-hmm. were that we were talking about, where uh, a donor, where where a church is in a position to run TV ads, for example, uh, attacking candidates. And a donor can give money to that group and not only keep their identity secret, but actually get a tax deduction for their political spending. Um, and, and that seems to be the real danger and I, uh, that we're, we seem to be moving toward. It seems to be sort of a, you know, the nose of the camel poking into the tent here. And, and I want to get to I want to get to that in a, in a second, uh, some details on that. But just to be clear here. Uh, these churches, for well, for one, if you're a church, you don't have to become a non a 501c3, right? If you want to be a church that endorses candidates or, or whatever, you don't have to take those tax deductions. That would be legal, right? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. There's nothing there's, there's nothing inherent in being a church that requires that uh, donors to you get a tax deduction. It's it's a benefit that you apply for. And in exchange for that benefit, 
uh, you agree to comply with certain restrictions, like the restriction on partisan political activities. So, but the, the Washington Post reports that uh, you know the IRS says that uh, the violations of the Johnson Amendment are very rarely pursued, and yet evangelical groups claim that it is being used selectively against them. Uh, preventing Christian leaders from speaking freely in church. Is there any evidence that you are uh, aware of that the IRS is selectively uh, targeting a certain group, certain evangelical groups, or any other group uh, using the Johnson Amendment? Uh not that I'm aware of, uh, and not that I've seen, not that I've seen put out there publicly. I, I mean, there is there is the example mm-hmm. from the Bush years uh, in the the mid 2000s when the the president of the NAACP spoke out against Bush, and the IRS did open an investigation into the uh, uh, in, into the NAACP for uh, for possibly violating the the political activities prohibition, mm-hmm. and and that is a and that is a concern. And I, but I think that any any church leader and any charitable leader are, are aware of where that line is um, and are aware that you're not supposed to, in your official capacity as the head of uh, a 501c3 entity, you are not supposed to engage in partisan political activity. You can do it on your own time. Uh, you can form a 501c4 or form a, a PAC. If you do want to directly engage in politics, you just can't uh, engage in electoral partisan electoral activities using tax-exempt, tax-deductible resources. And a White House official apparently told CNN last night when they were briefing them about this executive order that uh, the order itself does not change what's legal, we're not changing what's illegal, just enforcement discretion. Now, isn't that the same complaint uh, by some of these very same groups that, uh, oh, the president is not allowed to apply discretion into which federal statutes are or aren't enforced uh, and yet Donald Trump seems to be turning around and doing that exact thing with this with this order to the IRS to provide maximum discretion in enforcing this uh, this provision. Yeah, that's that's right. Uh, Trump, Trump and Republicans uh, criticized Obama with, his, for example, uh, with his executive order advising the uh, Department of Justice and ICE to use its discretion and how it treated uh, how it treated immigrants and undocumented immigrants, uh, and established it advised certain priorities uh, for for who should be who should be subject to deportation or enforcement proceedings. Um, and in some ways, this is this is analogous to that. And this is, I mean, and, and generally speaking, uh, the executive does have a certain degree of of latitude mm-hmm. with how it sets enforcement priorities. But but in some ways, I mean, when you look at the language of this executive order. Um, it hardly even does that. <laughs> it just it's it, it basically says to the IRS maintain the status quo. Uh, don't expand the definition of political activity that's going to lead to an enforcement action against a church. Uh, but it doesn't. But it it hardly even advises the IRS to use its discretion to turn a blind eye to churches that. Uh, that that do engage in some sort of partisan political activity. Uh, yeah, I mean, I gotta say, you know, uh, the order itself seems like a whole bunch of nothing. Never, you know, setting aside the the hypocrisy that that we you know I've, I've, we've spoken of here, um, it, it seems like a whole bunch of nothing. But it does point in a direction that can be troubling. There are uh, not all religious groups are supporting this. There was about thirteen hundred clergy signed a letter opposing. 
uh, this executive order. Uh, they published that as an ad in Politico recently. And uh, your uh, the, the Campaign Legal Center president, Trevor po- uh, Potter, uh, suggests in a statement today uh, again, that this may be the proverbial uh, camel's nose uh, poking into the tent. He cautioned that opening the door to a flood of unaccountable political money will undermine the purely charitable purpose of religious institution um, of religious institutions. So uh, but the idea of mixing religion and politics here, as you note, uh, Brendan Fisher, is not the only concern if this is, in fact, enacted in some way legislatively again he can't do it with executive orders he can't undo the statutory johnson amendment but they are talking about sneaking this into their tax cut bill their tax reform bill um what happens what are the dangers i I mean it seems like there's so much dark money already in politics we've talked about it so many times brendan uh, uh, you know with these 501c4s if they legislatively enact what Trump is talking about today, um, how does that make things even worse than they already are? Yeah, I think I think what we would see happen with 501c3s is what has already happened with 501c4 in the wake of decisions like Citizens United. After after Citizens United uh, was came down, uh, you saw the creation of an array of new 501c4 entities like. Carl Rove's Crossroads GPS, for example, mm-hmm. uh, that did nothing to advance uh, 501c4 social welfare goals. Instead, it primarily operated as, as a political committee and as a dark money political committee. It operated to uh, raise tens of millions of dollars and spend that money on elections and keep the identities of donors secret. Uh, and what would happen if the Johnson Amendment were repealed is that 501c3s would operate the same, that you would see the creation of new 501c3s like Crossers GPS that would mm-hmm. also keep the identities of their donors secret, but also offer those donors a charitable tax deduction. And that's the real, and that's the real concern. Uh, that's the real concern with this. Or the, the biggest, the, one of the biggest concerns with this is that if, if this Johnson Amendment were repealed, you would see the creation of an array of new 501, politically active 501c3 entities and all of a sudden, we as taxpayers are subsidizing uh, the dark money political spending of a handful of billionaires. So they're already allowed to put pretty much as much money as they want into these things via this, uh, the, the C4, 501c4s. Now they would get a tax deduction for it if, in fact, the, uh, Trump's order today was actually enacted in some way uh, legislatively. They would get a tax deduction for these billions of dollars that they're secretly putting into the electoral system. Yeah, that's that's right. So it would be tax deductible dark money, <laughs> dark Ugh. money political spending. Um, and then, of course, I mean for for churches too. You mentioned that uh, that many religious leaders uh, mm-hmm. uh, sent letters and have taken out ads opposing this. Um, and that's and and that's because that's that's another that's another potential wrinkle here that. If the Johnson Amendment were repealed, it would create new political and financial pressures for both charities and churches. Um, wow. uh, a donor to a charity or a donor to, donor to a church could use the incentive of financial support or the threat of withdrawing support to to pressure a church or pressure a charity to use its influence over its per- parishioners to support or oppose a candidate before the congregation. Um, and right now, by by virtue of 
the prohibition on political activity, a church is freed from those financial pressures, freed from those political pressures. Uh, and that's something I think that many, uh, that many in the religious community and many in the charitable, in the charitable sector uh, would, would, rather, would rather maintain. I'm speaking with Brendan Fisher of the Campaign Legal Center. Uh, Brendan, uh, R- Rabbi Jack Moline, president of the Interfaith Alliance, uh, charges that, quote, President Trump's executive order aims to clear the way for the religious right to weaponize their churches for partisan battle. Boy, that's just what we need. Um, the the uh, unnamed White House official speaking to CNN last night uh, downplayed any fears that this executive order today might be uh, challenged in court. He said, I don't think we expect any legal challenges. Uh, what's your assessment of that? A lot of these executive orders, uh, his attempts to roll back regulations of all sorts, whether it's from the, you know, on the on the at the EPA or the the Muslim travel ban have been challenged in court. Is uh, are you hearing any word that whatever he did in this executive order will uh, will be taken on by well campaign legal center or anyone else? <laughs> uh, well. I think, as as we discussed, this executive order just does not do much, um, at least with respect to the Johnson Amendment and uh, religious political activity. It just doesn't. It just doesn't change anything. Um, there may be other elements to it, uh, uh, with respect to some of the some of the uh, Affordable Care Act provisions that other organizations may be more interested in. But at least for in terms of of religious political activity, uh, this this maintains the status quo. Um, of course, if the IRS did begin to turn a blind eye to political activity by churches, but enforced the Johnson Amendment prohibitions against mosques, for example, mm-hmm. or against or against secular charities, then that would be an issue. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, then that that could raise establishment clause questions, um, where uh, there's uneven treatment of churches versus versus other institutions. Um, but we're not we're not at that point yet. Uh, like I, like I said, the Johnson Amendment is rarely is rarely enforced, uh, and this executive order doesn't change that. Uh, since you mentioned uh, the oh, uh, the the other, there is another element to this executive order. Maybe there's some more meat there. Uh, this uh, specified, well, unspecified regulatory relief. Uh, was mentioned in this executive order uh, for organizations who object on religious grounds to uh, a provision in the Obamacare uh, law that mandates employers provide certain health services like contraception. But wasn't that already also worked out previously after the the Hobby Lobby case? I mean, if so, do you have any clue what this regulatory relief is? Yeah, I mean it's a little bit out of my uh, out of my area of expertise, but yeah, it's not entirely clear. Um, you know, and regulations are created and repealed within the executive branch. Uh, so, if there are regulations that uh, that the that that the Trump administration wants reviewed or rolled back, uh, his cabinet secretaries can can look at that uh he can have if it's if it's obamacare related regulations he can have tom price his hhs secretary look at those regulations um you don't necessarily need to write an executive order to uh to to do that uh last question before i let you go brendan uh do you expect uh there there, as i said i noted uh, there has been reporting that uh, republicans are looking at adopting this or slipping this into one of their bills like their uh 
uh, proposed tax cut bill. Is is that the real danger? And do you expect the Republicans to make a move in that direction? That is the bigger that is the bigger concern. Um, this executive order, in many ways, is a is a dud. Um, does not go nearly as far as as promised, or as we as we and other uh, campaign finance reform groups feared. Uh, but there was a, a hearing today, a subcommittee hearing in Congress, uh, looking at this issue, and there have been bills introduced that would that would legislatively roll back the Johnson Amendment, and th- and that's the real and that's the real concern, and that's something that we. Uh, we need to be need to be watching closely over the next few months. And I suspect you will. Uh, please shout out when you see that moving forward, because uh, I, I I think that's where we're going here. They're not happy with the billions that are already in there. We also need to get a tax deduction for it. Let's pay the billionaires uh, for their effort to <laughs> undermine the political system. Just amazing. Brendan Fisher, always great talking to you, always clarifying talking to you. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, somewhat less concerned uh, now than I was before we talked about uh, this executive order today, so thank you for that. Brendan Fisher, he's the associate counsel at the Campaign Legal Center in Washington, D.C., you can find their work at campaignlegalcenter.org. Read his white paper on this. It's actually very interesting, very interesting history. Uh, and find him also on the Twitters at Brendan underscore Fisher. Greatly appreciate it, Brendan. Of course. Thanks for having me. You bet. All right, a quick break, and we'll uh, come back with, well, speaking of uh, the right pretending to be a victim, and making political hay of it. Uh, well, we'll come back with that story from something that happened over the weekend. Des, you'll like this one. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, Des, uh, you, thank you for uh, bringing this to my attention. We were talking about whether uh, anyone is actually even going to bother to sue uh, to stop this executive order by Donald Trump. Yep. The American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, uh, issued this statement today from uh, its director, Anthony Romero. Today's executive order signing was an elaborate photo op with no discernible policy outcome. After careful review of the order's text, we have determined that the order does not meaningfully alter the ability of religious institutions or individuals to intervene in the political process. The order portends but does not yet do harm 
to the provision of reproductive health services. Um, and so basically, uh, they are saying they are not going to file a lawsuit because this was just a big pretend stupid thing, at least for now. Oh, at least for now. I think it, it might be a warning shot over the bow. Uh, let's see. Well, yes, yeah, speaking of warning shots and big stupid pretend things, uh, this uh, over the uh, this from Fox News. All right. Over the uh, over the March for Science weekend. What was that about two weeks ago now? Yeah. yeah. Uh, there were apparently over this weekend, seven shots, gunshots were fired at a building at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. One of the shots struck the window of an office next to the office of a guy by the name of John Christie. He's a, a professor of atmospheric sciences. He has testified before congressional committees on on multiple occasions, basically to repeat his claim that climate model predictions of future warming are overstated. He's a he's a climate skeptic, as they nice like to like to call them. Right. Yeah. Um, nobody was hurt in this incident, but uh, John Christie told AL.com that he thought he was specifically targeted, that his floor was specifically targeted. But the university said in a statement that investigators believe that the shooting, which they say struck multiple floors of the building, was a random, quote, random, isolated event, unlikely to be a premeditated act. Again, one bullet, uh, dangerous as that is, but one bullet hit the window of an office next to where John Christie has his office. And Christie thinks, apparently, that he's being targeted. And now, uh, look how it was reported uh, this weekend, or actually uh, on Monday, by Brett Baer on Fox News. We are awaiting a decision from President Trump on whether the U.S. will continue to participate in a worldwide global warming treaty that he criticized during the campaign. Correspondent Doug McElway tells us tonight the animosity in the climate change wars is hitting new lows. In 1991, climate skeptic John Christie got NASA's Medal for Exceptional Scientific Achievement. Last week, he got seven bullet holes in his office windows during the March for Science weekend at the University of Alabama, Huntsville. Police think it was random. Uh -huh. Christie thinks he was targeted. Christie measures actual Earth temperatures from satellite data. He is skeptical of computer model predictions of warming and government remedies to fix it. So did you see what Fox News just did there? Yes. They've just told their audience that this guy got seven bullet holes in his office windows. Right. When, of course, that's not at all what the police said. The police said there was one office, one window in the office next, next to, to him, him. And six others that went elsewhere. No evidence whatsoever that he was targeted. But Fox News turned it into, uh, hey, this uh, climate skeptic. Uh, is against uh, taking action on global warming, and his thanks was seven bullet holes in his office windows. The the war over climate science is heating up, says Brett Baer. Now you've got people like you, Desi Doyen, taking shots, gunshots, <laughs> at climate scientists who don't agree with you. Yeah, Fox News, there you go. Unbelievable. But you know what? That's what the Yutzes who watch Fox News will walk away with believing that people like Desi Doyen are now shooting at uh, <laughs> at climate deniers.
Anyway, my thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, and to my guest today, Brendan Fisher of the Campaign Legal Center, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it and all the other ones we have ever done for free at bradblog.com or your favorite uh, podcast site. You can drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And find, follow, and share us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. My thanks, as ever, to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do what we try to do every day on these uh, public airwaves. All right, that's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.